It is another joyous occasion that brings us together to assemble, to do those things that are pleasing and worshiping to God. Certainly appreciate Brother French being with us this evening. He comes to, to visit with us from the Mountain View Church of Christ, and we support that congregation with a, a particular monthly financial uh, appreciation. And certainly in a, in a very challenging and difficult area, the church not known for its strength over in northeastern Tennessee, and yet that congregation is maintaining its soundness and fidelity. We appreciate very much the work that's being done in that area. Certainly, if you have a chance to visit with Brother William, I know he'd appreciate that and be happy to speak with you just after the services this evening. Again, I would ask that you keep Denise and myself in your prayers as we head on down to Keltenburg Wednesday night. Thankful for the invitation extended to us to be there. We'll miss the singing here, of course, but we know it'll be a joyous time of song service unto God. That particular gospel meeting at Keltenburg is such that they've had differing speakers each, each service, and so I'm just the one that'll be there on Wednesday evening and looking forward to being with those folks down in that area. But as you know tonight, by way of advertisement, we're going to do some questions and answers this evening. This is the seventh installment of this this year, and we have certainly had an interesting time looking at the questions that, that you've asked. Again, none of the questions are of, of my source, but rather questions that differing individuals have asked, sometimes in the box and sometimes just personally, and looking forward to giving some appreciation and answers to these questions tonight. As you do that, this opening slide is one that basically reminds us questions are a vital part of the way in which we garner information, isn't it? You noticed in the text of Mark 9 verse 14 that was read a few moments ago, there were those scribes on that occasion questioning Jesus' disciples. There were some things they wanted to know about, some things that were challenging to them. Well, tonight we're going to look at some questions that again have been posed and asked, and we're always excited to use the Word of God to provide us with some guidance to the extent that, that we in fact can. The first question is this one. Let me in fact read the appreciation of that particular question. The wording of it looks like this. What was the religion of Muslim peoples before the time of Muhammad? Now certainly this is a bit of a historically based question. The fact remains, you and I know today that the Muslim religion, the Islam religion if you please, is a very grow, much growing religion. Worldwide it is gaining critical ascendancy in vast, vast areas. But the question might well be noted, and that's what has been asked. Muhammad is regarded as, of course, the prophet of Islam. Well, what religion did they have before the time of Muhammad? Well, you'll notice on this slide, I've tried to put together very briefly a few of the considerations that might be noted. The Arab world, of course, is exceedingly dry, much of it's desert-like. And in fact, those individuals that in times past lived there, were quite often rather nomadic. They would move about rather frequently for pasture, for water, for other necessities. And there came to be that the particular religion that seemingly was the more prevalent in the area was a polytheistic religion. And by that I mean there were lots of different deities. Every city had bunches of them. Quite often it was noted they had a different deity for every day of the year. So lots of gods, lots of particular spirits, lots of particular forces in a way of religion. 
And all of that leads me to note, the area was known for its violence. It was known for, in fact, the bloody way in which they would take care of their disagreements. And it was also known for its immorality. You'll notice on the slide, for example, that that particular thought brings us to the time that Muhammad was born. Muhammad was born in 570 A.D., so keep in mind that is well over 570 years after Jesus was born. He didn't live anywhere near the time of the apostles. He didn't live anywhere near the time of the first century church, centuries later. And yet here was this boy that was born. He grew up in some rather hard times. Both his parents passed away when he was still rather young. Maybe it's fair to note that he, however, was one that in the year 16 A.D., he was known for going out and spending some time in a cave. And in fact, he found a time of solace and a time of quiet reflection. And he came back on this occasion and claimed that an angel had visited him. Gabriel, in fact. The Bible angel Gabriel. And in fact, he claimed that Gabriel gave him this message, you have a message I want you to proclaim, and I want you to spread it abroad. And at first, Muhammad was a bit reluctant. But a bit less than four years later, he had another vision. This time again, it was an assertion on the part of the angel that he needed to send forth this message. And that's where, of course, the beginning of Islam is to be noted. He claimed that words of the Quran were given to him. And in the times that followed, those were recorded. You may notice in particular, the movement began initially rather slowly. Very few people had really any statement of belief in what he did. However, over time, converts began to happen. Forces began to be weighed in his favor. He conquered cities. And may I ask you to notice this thought? In the year 630 A.D., his forces conquered a well-known city, the city known as Mecca. By 634 A.D., just a few years later, the entire Arabian Peninsula had fallen to Muslim. Within a hundred years of his life, the Islam religion was known from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to China. And today, worldwide, of course, is to be appreciated. But as far as what might be noted about what was the case before Muhammad, polytheistic, differing kinds of religions. And it brings us to question two tonight. This second question is one that takes us more directly to an Old Testament book. You might want to be turning to Ezekiel. We'll be spending some time in Ezekiel chapter 1 in just a moment, but the question is this one. Did Ezekiel see a UFO? as recorded in Ezekiel chapter 1. Many have been the claims that in Ezekiel chapter 1 is an ancient biblical record of a visit on the part of a UFO to planet earth. Many again have asserted, well right there it is in the Bible, we have been visited by unidentified flying objects from foreign civilizations, foreign parts of the universe. And Ezekiel chapter 1 is a record of it. Well, we will not look at all the details of that chapter, but I did want to point out a few things and, of course, seek to answer the question. Ezekiel chapter 1 begins with this observation. You'll notice that these words, stating in, starting in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, 
as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Would you take note? What is recorded in this chapter is a vision that was given to Ezekiel. Let's read on. In the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. And I looked, notice, looked. In the Bible, when visions of God are delivered, when these revelations are presented, one is able to see something, as was the case of John in the book of Revelation, or the case of Zechariah in the book that bears his name. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass, and they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle." Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. We'll read a little bit more in just a moment. But if I could ask you to note these pictures. Some artist has drawn these, and maybe they're at least somewhat reminiscent of the circumstances that we've just read. Ezekiel, what have you seen? I looked and I saw these creatures coming out of the fire. Their wings were joined together, and you may notice that not only were the wings joined together, but they had human arms and hands underneath them as per the Word of God. Furthermore, though you may not be able to see it, their feet looked like the feet of a cow or the foot of a cow. A very unusual sight to be sure. But remember, this is a vision indicative of a message that God wished Ezekiel to appreciate out at the far right. You'll notice maybe here's a close-up of one of them. You may appreciate that, again, there were wings and there were human arms and hands. If you look at the bottom, those look like the hoofs, again, of a cow or, or a bull. This particular circumstance reminds us, verse 12, these creatures are going to begin moving. And they went, every one, straight forward. Whether the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. They flew straight forward or backward. They didn't turn to the left or the right. Verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. And like the appearance of lamps, it went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning. At this point, as you think about what Ezekiel is seeing... Really, the question we've been asked attaches to one of the latter portions of the chapter. Keep in mind, living creatures are here, and those who think this was a UFO think this was aliens who visited the planet. It was not. 
Notice again their faces. The face of a man, four faces, four heads if you please. And you notice these faces. I hope to our mind will come the fact that in the book of Revelation, this imagery is seen again. The four faces there reminding us of a great lesson God intended the people of that day to appreciate. As we come to verses 15 and following, notice what else might be seen. Now, as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures. With his four faces, the appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a, of a barrel. And they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Some think this was a flying saucer. A wheel inside a wheel. It was able to move up and down as we're about to see in a moment. But again, let's read on before we quickly jump to a conclusion like that. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about, the four, uh, round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the Spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their Spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the Spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. At this point, you might begin to notice these wheels that are under discussion. May I submit another picture for your consideration? I'd submit that these were nowhere near anything like a UFO. Ezekiel chapter 1 is not the record of a UFO visit to our planet. Ezekiel chapter 1, as we're about to see in a moment, was an overwhelming vision of revelation bringing to the mind of Ezekiel the great glory of God. In the reality of this vision, the persons or the image that were seen, as well as the wheels. May I submit the wheels are somewhat reminiscent of the wheels on a chariot. But you'll notice the eyes that are fully represented in those wheels remind us that this again was what verse number 28 is going to highlight in these words. Maybe this is the verse. If you'd like to underline anything in this chapter specifically, may I ask you to do this one. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. These creatures, the throne that Ezekiel saw, these wheels within a wheel with that was full of eyes. It was a presentation of the glory of God. How do we know that's what it was? Look at the next verse. Verse 28 has made note of the fact it was the representation of God's glory, but verse number 1 of chapter 2 says, And He said unto me, Who's the He? It's the one speaking on the throne. It's the one who, in fact, had presented the realities of these things, touching the wheels and the living creatures. He said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. Who was talking to Ezekiel? God was. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me upon my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation, 
At this point, Ezekiel was commissioned to preach. He was commissioned to preach there by the river Kibar to these captives that were in Babylon. This image, this vision, this revelation that Ezekiel had just seen was a constant reminder of the greatness of God and the one who had given him this message. This wasn't a literal UFO that visited our planet. In fact, the book of Revelation will bring both of these realities to us again. The living creature seen in Revelation 4 and 5. At that point, might we look at one more thing on this next slide. The other Bible passages to which I would point your attention, later in Ezekiel 10, this thing is going to again be very helpful as you and I interpret rightly that which Ezekiel saw. But to answer briefly our question, it certainly was not a UFO. On to question number three. Our third question of the night tonight brings us this question. Is it a sin for a woman who is a mother to work outside the home when her children are at home? Maybe again, that's a very interesting question and one that maybe you and I have often considered. In fact, maybe you've heard individuals speak to some degree about this subject, but what about a woman, perhaps a mother, working outside the home when her children are still at home? Let's give some thought on that slide to the details of the Bible's consideration of this. May I ask you to begin like this? Without a doubt, is you and I think back into the history of our own country. A couple of hundred years ago, most everyone farmed and you worked on the farm. The husband worked on the farm, the wife, mother worked on the farm, and the kids were reared to appreciate work in that kind of way. Certainly as society has come to change, more men worked off the farm. Nowadays, of course, many women also, even as mothers, they work in places other than the home. May I say to you that although society has done that, our question is always, is what does the Bible say about this? What does the Word of God teach? It is never our desire to bind where God has not bound. But if it is the will of God that it be this way, we certainly want to know it. You'll notice about the middle of that slide. It certainly would be fair to say that in ancient societies, such as the times of Jesus and previous, women often did not have much opportunity, certainly not like the men did. But again, it's not our interest to base any answer on culture. We want to know what saith the Scripture, Romans 4, verse number 3. With that in mind, could I call then a few things to your attention, starting from Proverbs, the book of Proverbs in particular, Proverbs 31. We have in that particular chapter a record of the so-called virtuous woman. We know that she was a mother because of the fact her children are in, are in fact referenced in that chapter. But would you turn with me to Proverbs 31 and let's at least think about the Old Testament presentation of this in light of the question that's been asked. May I invite you to turn with me to verse 13 of that chapter. Speaking of the virtuous woman, she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. So we do notice immediately that she sought the means of these sources 
you'll notice it doesn't say that she necessarily grew them or her husband did. Maybe there were transactions or bartering or, in fact, arrangements in which she sought these things from afar. But that isn't all. Look with me at verse 16 of the same chapter. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. May I invite you to notice this woman took the initiative to consider a parcel of land in that day that was again primarily, shall we say, male-dominated, and she purchased it. Here again is a transaction taking place beyond the bounds of any farm or even her own house. To put that in another language, she in essence was involved in working outside the home. Let's read on. Verse number 18 of the same chapter. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good. That word merchandise involves buying and selling in the original Hebrew. It involves transacting business outside of the confines of her own home. One more thing, verse number 24. She maketh fine linen and selleth it. She had a business going on that took her outside the confines, the realm, if you please, of her own farm or even her own house. Finally, verse number 24, "...and delivereth girdles unto the merchant." In other words, she produced matters and took care of conveying them to their places of business, even to merchants that were somewhat distant from her. I say all of that to say, based on that chapter... She didn't only work at home. She obviously worked at home, without doubt, but that business carried her, it would seem, significantly beyond the bounds of what would be her own house. That Old Testament hint perhaps prepares us for the next one, which I've placed on the next slide. In addition to Proverbs 31, come with me to Acts chapter 16 as we go to the New Testament now. And again, give some thought to a woman who is mentioned on that occasion. It was the second missionary journey, and Paul and Silas were preaching near and far in a variety of places, and they came to a place you and I know as Philippi. As they did in that chapter, the following statement is made, verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Let's give some reflection to the facts of the case as that verse has highlighted it. First, Paul and Silas had come to Philippi. As they had arrived at this location, the first thing of note is, Paul found a place where some women had gathered a place of prayer. As they did, you may notice one of the women present was from Thyatira. Notice, she was far from home. Thyatira and Ephesus are not near each other. She had traveled an extensive distance in light of her business. And what was it? She was a seller of purple. She sold that rather royal fabric that was used to, to make fine linen, that was used to make apparel that was rather expensive. Her business was traveling and making available that, that, that apparel, that fabric. Let's read on. Not only was she of that character, but it says she worshipped God. So was it possible for Lydia to be a worshiper of the God of heaven and a businesswoman? Apparently so, for she was both. 
And isn't it impressive that upon hearing the preaching of Paul, she obeyed the gospel? And isn't it rather interesting that when she did, Paul did not tell her, you have to stop your business and stay at home. He did not tell her, you've got to quit this business life because now you must stay only at home. There's no hint of that at all in Acts chapter 16. In fact, we would have to read rather notably into it to even have that idea. Let's note verse 15, for example. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. You may notice that apparently she not only had a house here, she had a house also back in Thyatira. Or at least it may have been so. But at the very least, we seemingly see no hint that she was forcibly told that it was the will of God that she had to retire from her business. On that slide, I've asked you to notice it would seem that some might wish to insert the word only in verses like Titus chapter 2, verse number 4. In fact, it's quite likely that that's the verse that has been the one that has been the subject for a question like this one. Let's go ahead and turn over to that place. And notice verses 4 and 5 of that chapter. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. This is a passage in which instructions were given by Paul to Titus. This is what you need to teach in your congregation, Titus. And we've just read, you need to teach the older women so that they can instill in the younger women these things. Like what? Verse 4, train the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Verse 5, to be discreet to be chaste, to be keepers, to be at home. There's our question. When Paul wrote to Titus and gave him instructions, you teach the older women to train the young women to be at home. So does that mean that they must stay at home and they can't work outside the home? So far, in light of Proverbs 31, that seems not to have been the case. And certainly in light of Lydia, it seems not to have been the case. May I suggest that the word only is not in this verse. It doesn't say that they're only to be at home or that they're to be at home only. We would have to insert that verse, or that word at least, for it to appear. May I ask this question? Would it be possible for a woman to take care of the domestic duties of the house and to also have a career outside the home? And if so, would that be an infringement upon this verse? I can't see how it could be. As long as she takes care of the domestic duties, there are things to be sure that a woman must do because a man just cannot. Despite his best abilities, he can't run a house the same way a woman can. God didn't equip him for that. He has equipped a woman for it. She can take care of that house in a way a man never can. He can do his best. And there may be times he must contribute in vital ways to it. But she has a set of skills 
a set of capabilities, and a set of innate abilities that the man just doesn't have. For those reasons, I would say the Bible does teach that it is her responsibility to ensure the ongoing domestic nature of that house. And so long as those things are met, the Bible requirement is met. If she can do that and work out the home, work outside the home, that's fine. If she can't, though, then perhaps she should stay there for the well-being of the children and, and her husband. But so long as the Bible requirements are met, we are not at liberty to insert where God has not. And we're not at liberty to enforce where He has not given legislation. For that reason, let's close that slide like this. We must rightly divide the Word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15. And it's true that we understand the needfulness of that appreciation. Question number four. This fourth question brings us to this interesting question. It's a little bit lengthier, but nonetheless an easy one, I think, to understand. The Bible references and even quotes from several books that are not inspired, such as the book of Enoch. These books have not been preserved. What were these books? Because these books are not inspired, are those Bible passages which refer to them trustworthy and reliable? Do you gain a sense of the question? The person who asked it made note of the fact the Bible on several occasions makes a reference to various books which themselves are not inspired, particularly the book of Enoch. Because of that, what should we make of these other books? since they haven't been preserved for us and they're therefore not inspired, does that call into question the Bible references to those things? Well, let's give some thought to that, beginning at the top of that slide. I've made a brief listing for you. The Bible truly does reference a lot of additional books. For example, in Joshua 10 verse 13, there is reference to the book of Jasher. There is no Bible book called the book of Jasher. Furthermore, in 2 Samuel 1.18, there's the book of Nathan. The Bible book of Nathan hasn't been preserved either. In 2 Chronicles 9.29, the book of Shemaiah. Furthermore, in 2 Chronicles 12.15, the book of Iddo. Finally, in 2 Chronicles 20.34, the book of Jehu. None of those books have been preserved for you and me, and yet the Bible asserts the existence of them. But may I suggest to you that the really deepest consideration for the question comes in the New Testament. For after all, in Jude verse 14, and this was the reference in the question, reference is made to the book of Enoch. You might want to turn with me to the book of Jude, and let's at least look at the way in which that passage reads that reference. The book of Jude, little one-chapter book, second to the last book in the New Testament. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince, to convince all that they are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. The assertion by many, many people is that the reference to the word Enoch in verse 14 is a reference to the apocryphal book known as the book of Enoch. Well, before we accept that 
explanation. Let's develop some thoughts like this. Notice I said the assertions are that that refers to the apocryphal book of Enoch. I would claim it does not refer to the apocryphal book of Enoch. In fact, I feel very strongly in asserting that and maybe over the next few moments I can bring some thoughts to your appreciation that you might agree with me. Again, there is an apocryphal book known as the book of Enoch. If you look in some Catholic Bibles, you can even read it. I think this is not a reference to that book. Let's develop some thought like this. Partly why this is such an interesting question is because of its consequence. It goes like this. If Jude did quote from the book of Enoch, and the book of Enoch is itself not inspired, then does that mean the book of Jude should not be trusted? Should that mean the book of Jude should be hailed as unreliable? And therefore, some through the ages have been willing to not give much consideration to, Enoch, to, 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 to the book we call Jude. That's a great mistake for the following reasons. May I submit these possibilities, and I think the first one is highly likely. There was an Old Testament man named Enoch. We know him well in Genesis chapter 5. You may recall he walked with God. And God took him. He was translated, remember, that he didn't see death. The Hebrew writer makes mention of him in Hebrews chapter 11. May I submit to you this possibility. Jude may have directly quoted from the Old Testament man known as Enoch, not the apocryphal book called the book of Enoch. In fact, I would submit based on the wording of verse number 14, this clears this up fully. Let's note the language. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. If you and I revisit the Old Testament book of Genesis, and we start listing the generations one after another, go back to Genesis chapter 5 and see if you don't reach a powerful conclusion with me. Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, lists the genealogy following the time of Adam. It says, And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his, old, in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. So there's Adam and then Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And Seth lived in 105 years and begat Enos. So let's keep track of the number. Enos is number three. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. Canaan is number four. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel. Mahalalel is number five. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. And Mahalalel lived 60 and 5 years and begat Jared. So Jared's number 6. And Mahalalel lived after he begat Jared 830 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalel were 890 and 5 years and he died. And Jared lived in 160 and 2 years and begat. Enoch. Number seven is Enoch. 
exactly like Jude said that he was. Jude verse 14 says, Enoch also the seventh from Adam. I'd submit to you, Jude is not quoting from the book of Enoch, that apocryphal book. He's quoting literally from the man you and I know as Enoch in the book of Genesis. Now, maybe that leads us to note this. Some would be quick to say, but there is no record in the book of Genesis that Enoch ever said this. Well, that shouldn't alarm us. That happens more than once in the Bible. I listed for your consideration Acts 20, 35. There was an occasion there when Paul himself highlighted the fact that Jesus said this. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But there's no record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that Jesus ever said that. Isn't it true that by deliberate revelation, Paul was given the fact that that in fact Jesus had said, and it was quoted and included in the Word of God, May I submit to you, Jude's the same way. Enoch must have said this, and that information was given directly to Jude, and he quoted it. He did not quote from the apocryphal book of Jude, the apocryphal book of Enoch. And so it is that I think that answers that question rather fully. As far as some of the other things that might be noted about this question, again, these Bible books have not been preserved. They weren't inspired. And this reference in Jude to the book of Enoch is not to the apocryphal book of Enoch. One last thing, the question I ask. Because these books are not inspired, again, some of those other books were listed, does that mean the Bible books that refer to them are untrustworthy? Not at all. And that's the last point on the slide. In fact, in book of Acts, chapter 17, references made to uninspired writers, but it was a faithful quotation of what was said. The Word of God is always true. That which it records is exactly the way it is. It is for that reason some have called into question parts of the book of Job. Think about the way the book of Job develops. Job, of course, suffers calamities. Three friends come to him. Now, you and I often give great respect to Job. And sure enough, many of the chapters in that book are things that Job said, but a lot of the other chapters are things that either Bildad, Zophar, or Elihu said. Are we to trust them? Sure we can. Because what they affirmed was literally what they said. Now, they weren't always right. They often accused Job, but they literally said what the Bible says they did say. And therefore, we can have complete confidence that that's what they said. That's our fourth and final question of the night tonight. Oh, as always, much appreciation for the questions that you've submitted. And as always, the box continues to be there if you'd like to ask a question. Or maybe if you did ask one of these and I didn't answer, maybe in a clear enough way, ask it again. I'll try to do a better job at putting my answer together. As always, our desire is merely to let the Word of God do the speaking. I hope tonight we've been encouraged by these revelations from the Word of God. Powerful truths about the way that things are. Tonight it could be that as we analyze our lives that there's someone in this audience and you're not a faithful Christian. Maybe you've never become one and oh, don't you want to before you leave tonight. Don't you want to have the security and safety of being a child of God, being a member of the only church Jesus ever promised to build? 
and to rest assured that as long as you follow Him faithfully, you can go to heaven. That plan of salvation requires that you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Upon so doing, though, if you haven't been faithful, come back to your first love. Don't wait another night. Life is too brief and it's too uncertain. None of us know about tomorrow, Proverbs 27.1. This very night, if you have been engaged in activities and have brought reproach upon yourself and the church, make that right. Or better yet, let God make it right as you come rushing to His side. He'll forgive you of those sins if you'll repent and confess them and invite us to pray to God on your behalf. This very night, we're delighted to be able to help in any way we can. We just need you to let us know the way we can and do it at once while together we stand and sing.